please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11 with me. As you turn there, again, just want to invite you to attend this week's Vacation Bible Camp, if you're a child or a worker. This isn't for college students. Vacation Bible Camp, uh, this, this week, look in your bulletin for more information. It's at Camp Good News, begins at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. It's going to be a great week for our children. Just encourage you as parents to, to avail yourself of this opportunity to encourage your, your children, your children's friends, and their faith. It's going to be a great, exciting week. Luke chapter 11, we're continuing through the Gospel of Luke. And if you would stand with me in honor of God's Word, As we read Luke chapter 11, we're going to read a little bit more than we're going to cover this morning in our time together. We're beginning in verse 1. We read this. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey that I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You may be seated. May God be glorified through his word this morning in our hearts, encouraged. Let's pray. And Father, we do pray that your name would be glorified among your people at Bethany Community Church, and we do pray for the establishment of your kingdom in our lives and in our community and your world. And and Father, we ask that we would pray as we ought, we would pray the way that you've called us to pray, and we pray this morning that our hearts would be sensitive to the message of your word, and the Holy Spirit would be given to us in in, in the sense of, of changing our hearts to where they need to be. We pray this in your name, for your glory, amen. When I was a a senior in high school, I determined that I was going to strike up a conversation with the beautiful young girl who lived around the corner, Whitney Ann Pate. I was determined to talk to her, but I was understandably very nervous. As, As one song that was popular at the time put it, how do you talk to an angel How do you hold her close to where you are? How do you talk to an angel? It's like trying to catch a falling star. And so I I had this problem. How do I talk to this this beautiful angel that lives around the corner? And so I, I thought it through very carefully. I thought about what I would say, when I would say it, how I would say it, what I would say if she said something else. And so I thought through this very carefully, and then, as, as Providence would have it, one day I was walking down the stairs in our high school. Uh, she was walking uh, up the stairs, and as we passed, I said, 
hey. <laughs> but really, all that came out was, <sighs> and she walked right past me without saying a word. She claimed later that she didn't hear me say anything, which is totally believable. So I, I thought about it some more, and, and finally we were able to talk, and we had a, some wonderful conversations, and I said, I'm going to ask her out on a date. And so I, again, I thought carefully about what I was going to say. I, I thought carefully about what I was going to say when she said no and how I'd respond to that. And, and I thought about all these different scenarios, and then I, I stood before her, and as I asked her out on the date, what came out was, do you, uh, it's me, me, maybe? And literally, her, I, I, this is true, her next words were, I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> okay. Now, obviously, eventually, uh, we got over that communication barrier, and I was able to ask her to marry me, and she said yes without asking what I said um, or ignoring me. Uh, so things worked out communication-wise for us, and, and today uh, she is, of course, the person I, I love talking to more than any other human being in the world. Now, if it's true that a young man who is in love or at least in infatuation with someone, if it's true that he will think very carefully about what he's going to say and how he's going to approach this, this object of his affection, how much more true is it that you and I should think extremely carefully and deliberately about how we approach the sovereign God of the universe in conversation? If it's true that a young man who desires this, this young lady to, to look highly upon him and to, to, to find him favorable, and he, so he thinks through carefully about how he's going to talk to her and, and how he's going to respond if she responds one way and thinks very carefully about how he's going to, to talk around her and act around her, how much more important is it for you and I, who are believers, to think very carefully and biblically about how God desires us to talk to him? And what I would suggest to you this morning is that very often we fail to pray in a biblical manner. Some of us are aware of it. We get down and prepare to pray, and, and as the words come out of our mouths or as we pray them in our hearts, we're aware, man, this just sounds really awkward. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm doing this the right way. I'm not sure if this is a God-honoring, God-pleasing prayer. And so we're aware of our deficiencies in prayer, not just in the amount of time we spend in prayer, but even what's coming out of our mouths or our hearts as we're praying. We recognize this content doesn't sound quite right to me. Some of us don't pray correctly, and we're not even aware of it. We view prayers kind of like this, this magical formula. It's, it's time to ask Santa Claus for presents. And so we, we begin to pray, and what we're really doing is just asking God for things. We have this list, and there's no consideration as to whether or not what we're praying is a biblical prayer or not. Or we even think prayer time is this time that I get with God, and I, I get him to confirm the things that I want to do with my life. And so we, we pray about some decision that, that may be totally unbiblical, and yet God gives us, we, we say, this, this peace about it as we pray. And so we pray this unbiblical prayer for unbiblical reasons, and yet we believe we receive confirmation from God that we're supposed to do whatever it is we think we should do. My point is, we fail to think biblically about what we're supposed to say to our sovereign God as we communicate with him in prayer. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks is to look at the Lord's Prayer and what follows the Lord's Prayer and think about how to pray biblically. 
what the content of our prayer should be and what our heart attitude should be as we pray. In fact, if you look at the text with me, look at the background to the Lord's Prayer, or what we call the Lord's Prayer. Verse 1, it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So the occasion here is that Jesus is engaged in prayer. This is not an unusual thing for Jesus to be doing. Remember, as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, we've often seen Jesus praying, Jesus prays after he's baptized, he prays when he withdraws, he, he prays uh, whenever uh, he's about to be declared to be the Messiah by Peter, he prays before the transfiguration. Jesus is consistently engaged in prayer throughout the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus' disciples see that. And so on this occasion, as Jesus is engaged in prayer, one of his disciples comes up to him and says, look, Jesus, obviously this prayer thing is extremely important, you're engaged in prayer frequently, now as John taught his disciples how to relate to God, now please teach us how we should pray to God. What should the content of our prayers to God be? And Jesus' response to that request of the disciples is what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, as I've suggested in your notes, this could also be called the disciples' prayer, because this is a prayer the disciples are to pray. In fact, it's not a prayer that Jesus could pray. Jesus doesn't need to ask for forgiveness of his sins. This is a prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to their heavenly Father. You also notice, as you look at the prayer in Luke 11, that it's somewhat shorter than the prayer we find in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he also talks about a prayer that people should pray. And the prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and the prayer in, Math in Luke chapter 11 are very similar. They have kind of the same outline, except Luke 11 omits a couple of phrases. What apparently happened is that he had given them this, this model to pray in Matthew chapter 6, and now as his disciples says, how do I pray? Jesus gives him instructions following that pattern in Matthew chapter 6. These are, the, these are the, the aspects of prayer that should be present as you pray. And this prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, is the most famous prayer in Christianity. It's the model for prayer for the believers. In fact, you'll find that even people who have just a, a very superficial knowledge of Christianity will know the Lord's Prayer. I was uh, at Bethany Baptist Church. I'd been on staff there for just a couple of weeks, and the funeral home called the church and asked if they would send a pastor out to perform a graveside service. And uh, everyone looked at me, said, hey, new guy, you go out and do this. And so I said, sounds great. So I go out to the graveside and meet the family, and the funeral director comes up to me and says, what are you going to say? I said, well, I I'm going to talk about the gospel and share a few things with his family because they don't have a church home. And he says, that's great. They also would like you to say the Lord's Prayer. Now go. Okay. I was like, oh, dear. Um, and as I, as I started talking, I'm like, okay, Lord's Prayer. Um, there's a Matthew version. There's a Luke version. There's a King James version. Then there's a New International version. There's a New American Standard. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this. So we get to the end. I say, now let's, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. And I'm, I'm thinking King James. I'm going to go to the King James version, but I've got to get all these clauses right. I don't want to get them out of order. And so I begin to pray the Lord's Prayer, and the people that are there begin to pray it as well. But I notice they're praying just a little bit after me, so I think, okay, we're good to go. Except for one guy. He's praying it right along with me, very loudly and confidently. And we get to this point where our roads diverge. And I pray the wrong part of the Lord's Prayer. He prays the correct part. And his wife nudges him and says, don't you even know the Lord's Prayer? 
I felt terrible for the guy, but I was too embarrassed to tell him, hey, you were right and I was wrong. The Lord's Prayer is the model of prayer that, that, our, that Jesus Christ gives us as we approach God in prayer. It's a pattern for prayer, and you and I need to know it. We need to know the content of what you and I should pray as we pray a biblical prayer to our Heavenly Father. And what we're going to see as we look at this, the disciples' prayer over the next few weeks, is that it contains the God-exalting pattern for prayer that, God, that Christ's disciples are to follow. It's this, this God-exalting pattern that you and I, who are followers of Christ, are to follow. So look, we're going to look this morning at just the, the aspects of this prayer that relates to God. There's kind of two parts of the prayer. The first part of the prayer relates to our relationship with God. It's kind of a, a vertical prayer. And then next week, we're going to look at the horizontal aspects of this prayer, things we pray for ourselves and others. So let's look at three principles of prayer from the first part of the disciples' prayer this morning. Look with me at verse 2, and we see the first principle is you pray to your heavenly Father. Pray to your heavenly Father. Jesus says in verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Say, Father. What is the significance of Jesus telling them to pray to their Father? Let me suggest there's at least two significant things of this. The first significance of him using the term father in this prayer, the first thing that's significant is it indicates there's a close relationship with God. It indicates that there's a close relationship with the one to whom they're praying. In the Jew, first century Jewish culture, they wouldn't even say the covenant name of God. They wouldn't even use the word Yahweh. God was separate and, and distant and certainly not a father figure, and Jesus tells him, no, as you pray, say, Father, call God Father. There's a close relationship with the one to whom you're praying. Some have said that this is the same word that a child would use, a young child would use to, to just to kind of call out daddy to their, their father, and certainly that's true, but this is also a term that an older child could use toward their father. It indicates that there's a close relationship this past week, I was talking to a young lady, and as we're talking, she was telling me about what was going on in her life, and she said, you know, my, my daddy said this to me, and then she talked a little bit more, and she said, my daddy and I are going to go do this, and, and my daddy uh, did this, and every time she said the word daddy, I just kind of got this, this surge of joy as I thought about this young lady's relationship with her father. As she said the word daddy, I could tell that there was a closeness to the relationship. With my children, I call my boys, sometimes I, I refer to them just as, as son, and I might say, son, I'm, I'm so proud of you, or, or son, I'm so glad that you're my son, or with my girls, I, I call them sweetie, you know, sweetie, I'm so glad that you're my daughter, that, that term son or, or sweetie with my girls is a term that's only reserved for those who are my children, there's this, this close relationship that I, I can't say that to anyone else in the world. As I use that word son to my boys, what I'm saying is, is you're mine. There's this relationship between us that doesn't exist between me and, and anyone else. Jesus is saying, as you pray to God, you call him father, and it indicates that there's this close relationship with him that exists between you and him, and you're part of his family. That's the first thing that's significant about praying to your heavenly father. But the second thing that's significant about this is that it also indicates that there is an authoritative relationship between you and God. The father here is not some 21st century wimpy dad. 
Jesus is speaking these words in a culture, the Roman culture, that had a very high view of the authority of a father. As one Roman father said, one Roman father said, there are hardly any people who wield as much power over their sons as we do. The Roman father's authority over his sons and daughters extended their entire lives. He had the authority to decide whether or not his children lived or died at their infancy and on throughout their lives. He exerted the same type of authority over his children, what they were going to do, where they were going to live, how they were going to live. The father had this extreme authority over his children. And Jesus, as he tells us to call God Father, is telling us, one, there's this close relationship that exists between you and the one to whom you're praying, but two, do not be confused. This is an authoritative one to whom you're praying. You're in the family, but he is Father. What's the significance for you and I as we think about this first principle of prayer that we're to pray to our Heavenly Father? What does it mean as we say, Father, as we begin this prayer? Well, two things I think of as applications here. First of all, for those of you who are believers, as we begin our prayers, we must think very carefully about the one that we're addressing. Sometimes we're very flippant in our prayers, and sometimes there's not careful deliberation on our parts or, our, or other people's parts as we engage in prayer. Parents should be very careful as they instruct their children on how to pray, that their children know whom they're addressing as they address Father. But the second application that I would have here as we think about praying to your Heavenly Father is that prayer is not for everyone. In other words, not every person has the right to address God in prayer. Not every person can just assume, well, I can, I can uh, bow my head and close my eyes and begin spouting off some words, and, and the God in, of heaven has to hear me. No, this prayer is addressed to Father. If you do not have a relationship with God, you do not have the assumption that you can approach him in prayer. There is a relationship that is required for this, this prayer relationship to take place. A person comes into relationship with God, accepts him as their, their father as they place their faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And if there's never been a point in your life where you've recognized your sin, you've recognized your need for a savior, and placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you don't have this relationship with God in order to call him father. And so this prayer, although it's a prayer that's very common in our culture, is a prayer that's reserved for the believer. The first principle of prayer is you pray to your heavenly Father. What's the second principle? The second principle of prayer, as you think about how to pray rightly, you pray for the exaltation of God's glorious name. Pray for the exaltation of God's glorious name. Look again at the text. Jesus said to them, when you pray, fa say, Father, and then he says, hallowed be your name, now, what does that mean, hallowed? It means revered be your name. It means, God, 
you are a glorious God, and we want others to recognize that you're a glorious God. You're, you're set apart, you're, you're holy, you're, you're different from, from any other being in the, in the universe, in the cosmos. And, and when we say, Father, hallowed be your name, what we're saying is we want to recognize and we want others to recognize that your name is exalted and glorious and majestic. There's a couple things you and I need to understand as we pray, Father, hallowed be your name. In fact, let me give you four truths that I think you and I need to understand as we pray for God's name to be exalted. The first thing we need to understand is that God is holy. God is holy. He's revered. He's set apart. Psalm 111.9 says, holy and awesome is his name. Number one, understand God is holy. Number two, we need to understand that God does things so that his glory will be manifested. God intentionally does things so that his glory will be displayed for all to see. For example, Isaiah 5, 16, it says, The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. God desires that his holiness would be displayed, that others would understand his glory, and so he does things so that his glory is going to be displayed. In fact, Ezekiel 28, the book of Ezekiel 28, in verse 22, God says, I'm against you, O Sidon, and listen to this, listen to what he says to Sidon as he talks about his judgment coming upon this people. He says, I will manifest my glory in your midst. God's going to do something so that in this this wicked people, even among this wicked people, his glory is manifested. He says, I'm going to execute judgments in her, and as I do that, manifest my holiness in her. I will send pestilence into her, the blood into her streets. The slain shall fall in her midst by the sword that is against her on every side. Then they will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. He says, I'm going to gather the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered, and what? Manifest my holiness. God actively does things to display his greatness. God is holy. God does things to proclaim his greatness and his glory. Number three, related to this, actually, let me, let me do two more verses here. God does, remember, God does things to actively proclaim his greatness. Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8. The psalmist is talking about being in Egypt. And then in verse 8, he says, God saved them out of Egypt for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Why did God deliver people from Egypt? So that he would be glorified. And lastly, Isaiah 43, 7. Isaiah says that everyone, or God says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for what? My glory. God created you and I for his glory. He executes judgment for his glory that it would be proclaimed. He calls people out of Egypt so that his glory will be proclaimed. He forgives people so that his glory will be proclaimed. God is doing things actively so that the glorious name will be proclaimed. God is holy. He does things, actively engages in things to proclaim his holiness. Number three, related to this then, an obvious truth, God 
is passionate about his glory. God is passionate that his glory be proclaimed. He wants his name to be exalted. Isaiah 48, 11, God declares, my glory I will not give to another. They say, wow, God sounds really arrogant. God really loves his glory a lot. Here's why it's not arrogance for God to pursue his glory. God is one who can perfectly evaluate worth. And for God to look at you or me and say, wow, you're more valuable than I am, would be to incorrectly ascribe value to the created instead of the creator. Imagine that there's a, a, a majestic castle in, this, in the midst of this, this wonderful kingdom. And this wonderful kingdom in this, is ruled by a, a wise and benevolent king. And the king sits upon his throne and executes righteous judgments over his kingdom, and his people are blessed and happy. Now, imagine there's a court jester, a fool. How inappropriate and grotesque would it be for that fool to sit upon the throne? It would be completely inappropriate, and yet it is entirely appropriate for the sovereign king to sit upon that throne and rule in righteousness. God is the glorious king, and he rightly recognizes his own worth, and he rightly recognizes that he is the one who should be exalted for his glory and our benefit. So, God is holy. God does things to demonstrate his holiness and proclaim his holiness. Thirdly, God is passionate about his holiness. Now, here's the fourth truth, and you need to understand all four of these things in order to be able to pray the Lord's Prayer. The fourth truth is God's people should be passionate about proclaiming his holiness. That's the reason that you and I exist. Ezekiel 20, 41 says that God says, I will manifest my, my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. You and I exist, and, and as you and I live a, a godly life, we proclaim God's glory. Isaiah eight thirteen. the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. 1 Peter three fifteen. in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. God is holy. He does things to proclaim his holiness. He's passionate about his holiness. And you and I are instruments that should be passionate about proclaiming the holiness of our great sovereign God. Imagine you and I were, went to go see a movie together. We walked out of the movie theater and you said, Daniel, what did you think about the movie? I said, well, quite frankly, I was very disappointed. Here, we went in the movie theater to watch this, this movie about Russia and the Russian culture, and Russia was only mentioned twice in the entire movie. It was, all the movies took place in France. You said, uh, Daniel, is, is actually a movie about France. Oh, in that case, it was a very good movie. You and I, some person, someone's put it this way, you and I walk around like we think we're in this movie about ourselves. We think our life is this, this movie in which we're the starring, the, the actor or actress of, of our own lives. And so sometimes it's very perplexing for us because the things that happen in our life aren't very consistent with us being the main character in this movie. 
it's very challenging for us to understand. How could this happen? I thought I was the, the main character in this drama. What's going on? Don't you guys recognize that this movie is about me? No, it's not. And what needs to take place in our hearts and in our minds is understanding, ah, we aren't in a movie about ourselves. We're existing in a life in which our goal is to proclaim the glory of God. That's a radical alteration of, of reality for many of us. But as we come to that realization that we exist in this, this life, and it's not about us, it's about God, then we can pray this prayer, Lord, hallowed be your name. God, may your name be glorified. How does that alter how we pray? We say, Father, Father, hallowed be your name, Father, may your name be glorified and exalted in life. And as, as we pray that, here's some applications. It, it's a crucial change in perspective. Father, may your name be glorified. And instead of praying, God, please change my annoying little brother, we pray, God, may your name be glorified and, and help my brother to glorify you as well. And Father, help my response to my brother to exalt your name. Instead of praying, God, help me get better, we pray, God, hallowed be your name, please heal me so that I can continue to bring glory and honor to your name, and no matter what you do, God, as I go through this time, help me exalt and glorify your name. Father, we say, instead of saying, God, please change my co-worker's heart, we say, Father, help me, as I, hallowed be your name, may your name be exalted and glorified, help me as I engage my co-worker for your glory, help, my, help me to serve him in your name. You see the alteration in our prayer? Pray in God's, pray to your heavenly Father. Secondly, pray for the exaltation of God's glorious name. And then thirdly, pray for God's kingdom and his purposes to be established. There's a slight problem as we pray the Lord's Prayer. As we pray, hallowed be your name, may your name be exalted and glorified. And then as we pray, God, may your kingdom be established and your kingdom purposes be established. Here's the problem we run into. We can't pray for the establishment of God's kingdom without other kingdoms being laid waste. We can't pray that God's kingdom would be established without the destruction coming about of other kingdoms. In fact, let me give you three truths that I think are important for you to understand as you think about whether or not you're going to pray the disciples' prayer here. The first truth is this, God's kingdom in some senses has already arrived. Remember, or we're about to see in Luke chapter 11 later on that, that Jesus says this, he says, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, and it is, this is God's work in Jesus' life, Jesus says, then the kingdom of God has, has come upon you. Remember Jesus, as John the Baptist's disciples came to him and said, are you the one that we're looking for or should we wait and look for somebody else? Jesus says, tell John all these things that are happening. And he's talking about all these things that are establishing the beginning of God's kingdom. He says, no, I'm the one. In Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, 
Paul says he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, the kingdom of God is already here in some senses. In Luke 17, 21, it says, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Lord, here it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is, is in the midst of you. So the first thing you need to understand, when we say, God, may your kingdom come, we're not saying, God, someday in the future, after I've lived my life and and had my kingdom, God, someday in the future, let your kingdom come. Let me enjoy the the kingdom that I'm living in right now, and then someday, you know, I want your your Candyland kingdom with the, the, you know, the Willy Wonka factory. I'm kind of looking forward to that kingdom too. No, God's kingdom is here and now. It's already being established within our hearts. And so we say, your kingdom come. We're saying, right now, God, your kingdom come in my life. But secondly, it is true that God's kingdom is also a future kingdom. So God's kingdom is a present kingdom. God's kingdom will come in its fullness in the future. It hasn't fully arrived yet. Romans 8.23. In Romans 8.23, we see that Paul writes, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes this this coming kingdom of God. And he talks about about the, the Son of Man who's going to be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so that's this, this coming kingdom. You say, okay, Daniel, I, I, I can accept that. God's kingdom's here already. God's kingdom is, is a future kingdom. Big deal. Well, here's the third truth. The arrival, the arrival of God's kingdom, both now and in the future, destroys other kingdoms. You say, okay, and when you pray, when you pray, God, may your kingdom come, you're saying, God, I'm okay with you destroying other kingdoms. I'm okay with your kingdom usurping European kingdoms. I'm okay with your kingdom usurping African kingdoms and and Arab kingdoms, Middle Eastern kingdoms, and and Chinese kingdoms, and and North American kingdoms. I'm okay with that. And I'm not just okay with you usurping all those other kingdoms. I'm okay with you destroying my own personal kingdoms. I was thinking about this yesterday as I was mowing the lawn. You know, our lawns are like these little kingdoms we've established for ourselves, right? And we get very frustrated when our kingdom isn't operating the way we'd like our kingdom to be operating. We get upset whenever there's, there's not enough green. We get upset when the green's the wrong type of green and it's weeds instead of grass. We get upset when there's grass there and it's too long. We get upset when the grass isn't where it's supposed to be. We, and it's in the, and it's in the sidewalks. We get so frustrated with these, these lawns, these little kingdoms we've established for ourselves. And what we see in Scripture is that there's going to be this kingdom that comes, God's kingdom, and it's going to destroy and obliterate all other kingdoms. In fact, if you'd like, turn to Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, we see the establishment of this kingdom as 
Daniel talks to King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar has had this, this dream about this, this image and this stone that destroys this image, this statue. And here's what Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. It says, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, it says, And in those, the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break to pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw, a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and then it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. There's coming a kingdom, and it's going to obliterate all earthly kingdoms, including your own. And so when you pray, God, your kingdom come, what you're saying is, God, destroy me. Destroy the kingdom I've created for myself. Destroy my, my hopes and ambitions that are contrary to your will. Destroy whatever it is about me that you don't want to be a certain way. Destroy it. Your kingdom come. Are you really comfortable praying that? You're not praying for some future Disney World experience. You're praying now, God, your kingdom come, destroy me, establish you within me. One other passage I want you to think about. I think it's a, a passage we should turn to almost any time we think about the establishment of God's kingdom and the destruction of our own is Revelation 18, last book in the Bible. We see the destruction of the kingdom of Babylon, the city of Babylon. As you see in Revelation 18, this destruction of, the, of Babylon, the fall of the city, you see that there are two things that are very prominent about this city, Babylon her wealth and her immorality. Her wealth and her immorality. Verse 3 of Revelation 18, it says, The nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then in verse 4, a voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. And then he goes on and talks about the destruction. It says that she, verse 7, she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So like, uh, so a like measure of torment and mourning, uh, since in her heart she says, I am a queen, I am no widow and no mourning I shall ever see. And then he talks about, verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her. Listen to how their hearts respond. They will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Can you pray for God's kingdom and his purposes to be established. Is that a prayer that you can honestly pray as you think about what it's going to mean for you personally?
there are two responses to the destruction of the city of Babylon. One is for people's hearts to be removed from that city and say, no, I'm, I'm not going to participate in that immorality and the luxurious living. The other heart says, as it sees the destruction of the city of Babylon, to, to wail and mourn and weep. We don't know when, but someday this kingdom, this economic structure, this political structure is going to be obliterated. It will be no more. And God calls us to pray for our country, to pray for our kingdom, to pray for our, our small kingdom, ourselves, and, and to pray for the large kingdom, the, the, the peace of, of our nation. And, and yet we know that, that someday that, that's coming to an end. What kingdom do we love? What kingdom does our, our heart rejoice in? So often we love order. We love peace. We love security. There's this uh, the great, uh, great moment in the musical Mary Poppins. If you've ever seen the, the movie based on this musical Mary Poppins. And there's the, the dad named Mr. Banks. And Mr. Banks, we're introduced to in the first scene that we see him, he, he comes into his home and he begins to, to sing this song about the order and the precision of his little kingdom, his home. He says this, he says, I, I run my home precisely on schedule. At 6.01, I march through the door. My slippers, sherry, and pipe are due. At 6.02, consistent is the life I lead. It's grand to be an Englishman in 1910. King Edward's on the throne, it's the age of men. I'm the lord of my castle, the sovereign, the liege. I treat my subjects, servant, children, wife, with a firm but gentle hand, noblest oblige. It's 6.03 and the heirs to my dominion are scrubbed and tubbed and adequately fed. And so I'll pat them on the head and send them off to bed. Ah, lordly is the life I lead. You and I are like little kings struggling to maintain order of our kingdom. And the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, calls us to say, Psh, my kingdom go away, your kingdom come. As we pray this prayer, what does it mean specifically? I think it means you pray this, you say, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. I wanted to take a vacation with this week, Lord, help me take this mission trip. God, thy kingdom come. I wanted to be healthy. You've said that I'm to be sick right now. Your kingdom come, not my kingdom. It means saying this. It means, God, I wanted this for my children's life. Thy kingdom come. You've chosen something else. And it's not what I would have chosen, but, but thy kingdom come. And so, God, this isn't the teacher that I would have liked them to have. This isn't the, the way that I would have liked their friends to respond to them. But instead of being angry and, and bitter and, and upset, thy kingdom come. God, this isn't the financial situation I'd like to be in. I would like my retirement to be doing better. I'd like to have greater security in our nation. I'm not happy with the political situation. I'm not happy with this. I'm not Thy kingdom come, though. God, I wanted X. You wanted Y. Why come? Let your kingdom come. Do you see the radical alteration in prayer this provides us? The Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, begins with these truths. We pray to our Heavenly Father. 
We pray for the exaltation of God's glorious name, not our own, and we pray for God's kingdom and his purposes to be established, not our own. And after we've prayed those things or things like that, then what happens? Then we pray for our own needs, the needs of our friends and family. But it's interesting. We've spent the last 35, 40 minutes talking about these truths in God's prayer, and we haven't gotten to ourselves yet. I think that's a very important point. We begin with an exaltation of God's name, and that shapes the things that we pray following, doesn't it? Next week, we're going to continue looking at the disciples' prayer and and see how we're to rightly relate to God. Fortunately, with Whitney, I eventually learned to have enough confidence to speak to her and talk to her and communicate with her. Our conversations became one of the greatest joys of my, my life. To rightly understand how to approach God in prayer, it begins with a fundamental understanding of the purpose of life that we are not the main character in this drama. We are supporting cast members that continue to exalt the name of our glorious God, and we work to the establishment not of our kingdom, but to his. Let us pray. And Father, it is to that end we commit ourselves. May your name be glorified, may your kingdom come, and may this next week we have a, a radical alteration in our reality as we think about how every facet of our lives is to bring you honor and praise. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.